This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. For decades, the author Esmerella Santiago has written both in memoir and fiction about Puerto Rico, immigration, and identity. Santiago was born in Puerto Rico and moved to New York as a kid. And one of her admirers is staff writer Vincent Cunningham. Esmeralda Santiago, um, especially in her early uh, memoirs of moving from rural Puerto Rico to the hustle and bustle of New York, is someone that I consider one of our foremost chroniclers of what it means to grow up, uh, one of the, the great crafters of coming-of-age narrative and can really move you through, you know, the growing consciousness as a, of a person as their circumstances change and sometimes... Um, surprising, sometimes terrifying ways. Santiago's new book, Las Madres, is not a coming-of-age story. It's about people later in life looking back. Here's Esmeralda Santiago talking with Vincent Cunningham. Las Madres is about five women who have known each other all their lives and are friends, and uh, also some of them are related to one another. And they decide to go to Puerto Rico for the birthday of the eldest of these women. And while they're there, they are stranded by Hurricane Maria, and they have to deal with that situation and In the process, they learn a lot about themselves, about one another, and about one another's histories. My origin story with your work is when I was in high school, I could, you know, I I studied Spanish and I I could speak, I need to relearn Spanish, right? But back then, the first book that I ever tried to read totally in Spanish was Casi Una Una Mujer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I read it first in Spanish. And I still wonder, I wonder how you know, coming from a multilingual background, you know, I love it when you talk about Spanglish, like people that can so fluidly move between languages, even in the course of a sentence or a syntactical unit. Um, How do you think about your work in translation? And is that especially an especially fraught practice for you, knowing that you want to reach these two peoples, these two language groups equally? Yes, I I would love to be able to bridge that. my my readers who who enter into my books from cuando era puertorriqueña 
And if they are Puerto Rican and speak Spanish, they tell me all the time that that book is much funnier in Spanish than it oh, is wow. in English because it is the uh, the vernacular of, of the people uh, of the time also. Yeah. It's very particular to that uh, historical time when I was when I was uh, being raised there. I also deliberately put in these little coded messages for the Spanish speakers because I am <laughs> writing in English. Right. So I put these uh, these coded messages for the Spanish speakers that would get something that perhaps those who don't speak Spanish they can they'll just slide by through them and it doesn't make very much sense to them or it doesn't or they don't care you know but people who understand it get it is there one example of one of those you, you mentioned coded messages that you can that you could think of just to to satisfy my own curiosity well um you know i think in the names particularly uh they're little code you know mar y sol which means uh sea and sun and mm -hmm. rios which means rivers so her name is marisol rios fuentes and you know, her you know um sea and sun rivers fountains you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so those kinds of things um i it sounds I like, like to... it comes from the sound of music or something right, right. You're about something to break like... out into song yes yeah and at the beginning of your book, you do a sort of list of the names, almost like it more commonly happens at the beginning of a play. Like, here are the uh, personae mm -hmm. that you're going to meet. Um, and there's a, a great quote that you have up there, like as a sort of note to the reader. You say, the conquest of our hemisphere meant the erasure of our clan and familial names. In this novel, I endeavor to name even minor characters to honor the historically nameless. Um, and I thought about that. You know, it's like, I wonder what yeah. names have meant for you in, in your writing and in your life. Well, um, I think, you know, you're, I'm born and raised as Esmeralda Santiago Santiago. I'm Santiago on both sides. Uh, it's yeah. something that um, I'm very aware of that at a certain point in my life, I don't know when it was, it might have been when I began to speak English um, and I felt comfortable in it, is that I I began to pronounce my name Esmeralda as Esmeralda. Mm -hmm. I anglicized it to make it easier, every once in a while somebody will pronounce it in the Spanish. <laughs> and uh -huh. I'm like, oh, what? You know, I'm so used to to the other sound because I live in the United States uh, that it's it is like it's a different person. Yeah. <laughs> so that that sense that I'm coming from Puerto Rico, just being on that plane, I became someone different, and then the same thing happens to Luz with her name. One of the, I don't think I'm spoiling anything in the book to say that early on, Luz has a traumatic brain event that changes her relationship to language and memory. Um, a kind of relearning has to occur for her. And um, something similar happened to you uh, yes. in your life. You, you, you had a stroke and you had to reteach yourself English, something that is one of the themes of your books already kind of yeah. became a fate for you. Were you thinking about that when you created Loose? How, um, how have you thought about that? I think language has been a preoccupation for me because I, until I was 13, I did not speak English. Right. Came to the United States, um, had to teach myself English. And so I did it by um, reading children's books um, and basically learning all the nouns, you know, apple, banana, you know, <laughs> car, <laughs> things yeah. like that. Um, and... Um, and so when I had a stroke um, many years later, 
And I realized I have lost the ability to uh, understand the written word. I, I could write, but I could not understand what I had just written. So I had this process, this happened to me twice the first time coming to the United States, right. knowing that I recognized the letters, they had the same scripts that we have in Spanish, but I didn't understand it. It might have been, you know, any, any language, really. Um, and so when I had the stroke and I had the same situation because my brain had a problem, um, I was like, how ironic. <laughs> but then having gone through it, I knew that I could recover. My doctors kept saying, you know, the brain is elastic, it learns, it finds path, et cetera, et cetera. And so I said, okay, well, I'm just going back to the library, to the children's book department, <laughs> and finding the <laughs> the alphabet books and all the nouns, and then keep moving like that until 18 to 20 months later. Then I knew, okay, it looks like I have managed to get over the hump. But I remember that sense of knowing I know something but I don't know it. <laughs> yeah. And that sense stayed with me long after I was over that situation, that feeling between, between um, needing something that I knew I already had, but I didn't have access to it. So for me, a Luz is almost representative of Puerto Rico itself. We have this very long history that we don't necessarily have access to, and especially for Puerto Ricans who um, may not speak Spanish. I mean, of course, in Puerto Rico, people are taught this history and, and, and they know. But those of us who live outside of the island, we live the history, but we don't really know it. We, mm. we, we have a reason uh, to call ourselves Puerto Ricans, whether our parents or because we were born there or our great-grandparents, for whatever reason we identify, but we may not all have all the history that really gives us a sense of why it is that we call ourselves uh, Puerto Rican. And, and all those things that I, that I grapple with in both my memoir and uh, fiction, they pretty much are the same. There's this sense of characters are moving between Puerto Rico and the United States, constantly trying to, in, in Spanish, this word is lidiar. It's like to handle both mm -hmm. things. And even as I'm speaking to you, I'm I'm like balancing my hands in <laughs> higher and lower. You look because... like a statue of justice. Yes, you're doing <laughs> exactly. the one hand. Uh -huh. It's like we do this constantly um, for those of us who come from other cultures. And let's just not even say country because that was the next thing I was going to tell you is about Langston Hughes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who was coming from the South and came to Harlem, I guess, you know. But so, yes, maybe he was in a different country. Um, but I, um, I think that's where it changed for me is he actually came to my high school when I, I think I must have been a junior, I think. Wow. And so I had been in the United States for two and a half years and my, my English reading English was at a much higher level than my speaking English because sure. it was easier for me to to read it than to than to pronounce it because people would laugh at me or make you know make yeah. make it make it uncomfortable for me but this man came to our high school and there was a full assembly i remember 
I just have never forgotten him. You know, he was wearing like a ivory colored suit. It must oh have been God. in the summer, and <laughs> he was very elegant and oh, wow. and and gentle and and kind of kind. I mean, he was aware that he was with all these high school student, you know, public school in New York City. He was aware <laughs> where he was, right. and he was just so tender and great, and and talked about his life and his work. I had never heard of him until then, and I. I went straight to the library mm -hmm. and I borrowed all his books. Wow. And reading his work made me feel for the first time in the time since I have arrived in the United States, like I'm part of this culture and this society. I just happen to be invisible in it. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank you, Mr. Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this might be the a, a, one of like a deep ancestral key to why I love your work so much because you know Langston Hughes was my first favorite poet, and I always loved really? you know, theme for English B where he talks about like America. I'm a part of you, just like you're a part of me. Like there is some we're gonna have to find this thorny path toward coexistence in some way. You know, it made me wonder kind of um, what you would say about sort of the various forms of patriotism, um, nationalism that are at work now in Puerto Rico. Some people are fighting for statehood within the United States. Some people still say, you know, independence. There's there's so many different ways that people express that pride, whether it's patriotic, nationalistic, whatever. I just wonder how you have engaged with, with that activism um, in right. Puerto Rico. Right. Well, I, I, tried to, um, I tried to pay attention to all of it, but my uh, paternal family were all nationalists. <laughs> um, oh, is it today? Oh, my goodness. It's today is uh, the anniversary of uh, the United States invasion of Puerto Rico through Guanica. <laughs> That's and, um, and then wow. my uncle, um, from a very early age, he was really against the fact that the United States basically took us <laughs> and then claimed us and said, okay, you're ours now and uh, you'll have to speak English. And we're like, uh, no. <laughs> so that was in on my father's side. The struggle always was towards independence, nationalism, pride on the, on the, on the patria. And then on the other side, <laughs> my mother is the one who brought us to the United States, right. who just thought this is the world is the most wonderful place is to be in the United States. So so from from both of them, I really get that sense of, of patriotism and, and sense of Puerto Rican-ness. And then from my mother, this this understanding of we were peasants with no land, basically. Um, and so for my mother, this was a huge step up in spite of the kinds of places that we were living. Right. So I really understand both sides from that perspective, but the part of me is emotional, <laughs> and emotional is a patriotism of the patria and nationhood that I'm not really sure that in Puerto Rico we have the leadership to to pull off, frankly. Um, I wish that I could say, oh, such, you know, there's no Pedro Albizu Campos. He towers over our history, just like Martin Luther King towers over our, you know, 
culture here. Yeah. Um, I, I long for that. I'm not sure that that's available quite yet, or I have not come across that person or those persons mm-hmm. just yet. The novelist Esmeralda Santiago speaking with Vincent Cunningham of The New Yorker. More in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I I wondered about this mixture of kind of matriarchy, which is always very strong in your books, right? That there is a, a private world among women that like... That, re- that keeps communities going, that, that propagates us into the future. But also it's a, a space for a kind of, whenever I read your books, I can hear my mother and her friends talking, you know, <laughs> which is my introduction to language. Yeah. Um, I just wonder how you, what that's been as a constant through, throughout your work and life. Uh, well, I'm the eldest of 11 children, of which were six sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when my mother brought us to the United States, um, she left my father. And uh, then we lived with my mother and her f- her mother and surrounded by my uh, grandmother's sisters and nieces. So I come from this universe surrounded by very strong opinionated, (laughs) um, articulate women who do not pull punches, as they say, as the expression goes, you know, they, they will tell you what they, what they feel right then and there. And I, and I, I like to play with that. I I like the fact that, um, you know, Graciela, for example, is, is a very, it's very open about her, 
uh, and and comfortable in her sexuality and her desires and her wanting uh, something. And when she wants it, she gets it. You know, there's no there's, there's no guilt around it. There's no excuses to be made about it. This is part of who I am. And but you know, I know that I am a very different Puerto Rican when I'm in a room of U.S. Americans who've never been to Puerto Rico, who doesn't know where it is. You know, I'm a very different person than I am among people like me. It's, it's, this is part of the, of the game that we all have to play if we come from these other cultures and, and societies and, and language groups, you know, that, that we really do become a different person. Like, yeah, my hands are moving again. <laughs> <laughs> this is I, the Puerto Rican in me. <laughs> that, I, I'm not Puerto Rican and I, st- I suffer from the same affliction. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up all of your secondary messages. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's. I mean, I think there's a language and gesture yes. uh, of, of that, that we have, and I think that women have particularly. I um, I, I wrote the screenplay for the film made of Almost a Woman for yes. Masterpiece Theater, and I remember my son happened to be on the set with me that day. We were observing mm-hmm. um, one of the scenes, and the woman who plays my mother, Wanda de Jesus. Uh, is interacting with a young actress who plays uh, me as a as a teenager, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> Wanda de Jesus looks at this young actress in such a way that my son just grabbed my hand and he said, "Oh my God, <laughs> that's you." That's the way. <laughs> and I said, "I said," and I grabbed him back. I said, "No, that's my mother. That is the look. That is the mommy look." You know, <laughs> and so I think there is that. That, that that we recognize because we've been around it about our mothers, our grandmothers, our tias, you know, our aunties, our cousins, and it's a completely different language than yeah. what U.S. Americans speak physically in their own communities and in their own lives and in their own histories. That's wonderful. Thank you again so much. This has been such a lovely time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the great questions and for making me think. It's, no, it's, 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 I learn a lot. The New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham speaking with author Esmeralda Santiago. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Imputubuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. 